Do injectable corticosteroids have similar catabolic effects on lean body mass as described with oral sy uh, systemic, systemic corticosteroids, or do intraarticular cortisone uh, shots only have a potential for damage to tissue within the joint cavity, ergo tendon rupture or yeah. cartilage damage? I can do this. Yeah. All Go right. Ahead. So uh, we talked in a couple instances this weekend about corticosteroids like prednisone, for example, as a catabolic type steroid that sometimes patients can take. Um, there are also injectable types, and they can be injected in different ways. So they can be injected directly into the muscle. Um, they can be injected into an IV. They can be injected into a joint um, for osteoarthritis or other purposes that orthopedic surgeons and other types of uh, doctors will very commonly do. So injectable corticosteroids, if they go in the muscle, yes, they have a systemic effect that's pretty much the same as an oral uh, corticosteroid, but it's pretty uncommon that somebody would be regularly receiving intramuscular steroid injections repeatedly over time. It's usually a one-time thing that they might get for a particular condition and then you move on from there, or if they need continued treatment, it would go to be oral. So that's a less common scenario. I think this question asker was more interested in the specific intraarticular types. Maybe they have osteoarthritis in the knee and they get these injections put into their knees and the systemic effects of this stuff is pretty small. Uh, I would not at all be particularly concerned if somebody gets steroid injections in, the, in a knee or in a joint that they're gonna lose their muscle mass or get sarcopenic as a result for multiple reasons. Number one, the systemic absorption is relatively low. And additionally, most doctors will not perform these injections more frequently than, any, than about three to four months at a time, once every three to four months. I will also say that the evidence that these things work much better than placebo injections, pretty weak evidence that they are super, super effective. Um, so I would revert back to a lot of the advice that I gave in our lecture about pain and managing it. And we have strong evidence that, uh, increase, that strength training for patients with osteoarthritis can improve pain and function. So I would definitely recommend that. If somebody, for whatever reason, is a hyper responder to these sorts of injections into their knees, for, which is the most common place that these get injected, um, and you know they're getting them maybe once or twice a year, and they're like, makes me feel great for the next six months, I can do everything I want, and I don't care if it's placebo and blah, 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 blah. I'm like, no. Cool, hey. All right. Just go on living your life and with, and with do your that. foam roller. Yeah. Um, I don't tend to recommend those or perform those for patients uh, right off the bat based on the evidence base for them. So, but little concern to be had with respect to lean body mass with those steroids that go into the joints. Oh yeah, just as a frequency and dose is so low. Yeah. But if you have like an autoimmune disease and you're on oral systemic steroids for a long time, then yeah, you're at higher risk for osteoporosis, high risk for sarcopenia, high risk for sepsis, for death, for all kinds of things from them. But again, you're balancing risks and benefits compared to the actual condition that you're treating. Correct. So, Okay, question number nine. Is there hope for poor responders to training? Uh, how can they keep from getting discouraged? So that's interesting. Uh, you probably, this question assumes that you would be able to tell if somebody's a poor responder to training early on during their training career or before they've even started training at all, uh, which I would strongly disagree with. And I, I like, Austin's a good example for this, so I'll just, again, use you. I, I mentioned this during our, uh, I don't know which lecture it was, but in any event, Austin, at the beginning of his training, he did a novice linear progression, and at the end of his novice linear progression, he squatted 285 pounds, three sets of five. That was where he ended up, which is a patently average response. And, but what's interesting is that despite that being an average response, the creator of that program would say, that's below average, you didn't do the program right, you didn't gain enough body weight, you know, 
Okay. Yeah, right, but I'm just saying, that's, that's what would be said. Yeah. That would be, on the outset, that would be looked at being a below average response, even though, according it to- It is the average. It is the average based on data collected on that, freaking, on that program. So in any event, that being said, five years removed from being what we would, what, what the creator of that program would deem a low responder and what the data would say to be an average responder, you squatted 625, which is elite level relative to your cohort. Sure. That is a great, massive squat. <laughs> <laughs> so we were unable to tell early on in his training career whether or not he was actually a poor responder, average responder, or high responder to training. Um, and in fact, I would say that you're unable to tell if somebody is a poor responder to training based on the first dose of training you give them or even the second dose because you may have messed up the formulation, right? If the type of training and type of stress that you've given to them is wrong at each step of the way, you don't know if they're actually poor responders or if the stress to adaptation uh, ratio is just off based on the wrong formulation. So I don't know that you'd be able to like chalk up that somebody is, is a poor responder to training until uh, you know, they've been training for some period of time. So the most important things with early training early on are that the people enjoy the process, they understand what they're supposed to be getting out of it, things that they're supposed to be learning from like a self-efficacy standpoint, like, okay, here's how I do the exercises, here's in general what the training goals are, here's in general how I should load the ball, like, the, you know, they're, they're gaining skills, right? Like that's, and they're having fun doing it. That's what they're supposed to be learning early on. We don't, again, care, like, what is your max squat at 12 weeks? Like, if that's the benchmark of success, I think that, you know, that's very short-sighted. Short yes, jinx. And it's, yeah, and I, I just don't care about that. So uh, for people who have gone through maybe a year, two years of training, and they think I'm a poor responder, I would wonder about the actual like types of training you've been exposed to, because you might need a different formulation. Uh, and Consistency. Then, yeah, and like how often have you actually been engaging in training and what have been your barriers to like having consistent training. And then if all of those things check out, I'm like, wow, it looks like you've actually tried a lot of things and you've actually been super consistent and your nutrition's been on point and all this other stuff, you're just not getting it done. It's like, well, what are you gonna do, not train? <laughs> well, how can we make this enjoyable for you to train? Right? Like what sort of things are meaningful to you? How can we make this enjoyable to you? If somebody who you know, comes in after two years of training, they have a 10 inch vertical as a male, and like, you know, after squatting consistently for two years, have squat, you know, 225 as their 1RM, and they're like, the only way that I'll enjoy training is if I win USAPL Raw Nationals. Well, yeah. it's like- it's Expectation management. Yeah, exactly. So why is that important to you? And are, is there anything else that you know, would make training rewarding for you. So I think the role, the job of a coach is to identify people's talents and sh divert them into uh, 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 different directions where they can be super, uh, very successful, right? So somebody might say, I just want to be a basketball player, basketball is my jam, I love it so much. And it's like, yeah, but you're a world-class track athlete, so let's like push yeah. you into that sport. Yeah. Same thing, so I want to be a powerlifter, I love powerlifting so much, and you're like, look, man, you really don't want to do this, right? believe me. <laughs> You push them into a place where they can be successful. And I think that if you look hard enough and you have enough resources that you could probably find some, a place yeah. to push somebody towards. Yeah, yeah, those are the last few examples are funny because I grew up playing multiple sports and uh, played baseball for a bit. And I was actually pretty good defensively, but I could not hit for shit. And I think it's probably because I have 
part of it outside of you know all the factors that go into it but i have like abysmally poor vision yeah my, my visual acuity is really really bad notice have, he didn't say eye hand coordination because that's not actually the thing it's having it's, above average vision yeah yeah and and by the third grade i was wearing like high powered contact lenses these actually aren't his real eyeballs yeah, right. <laughs> this is weird and and you know if i at that age that was the only sport i knew and i was like i want to grow up and be a really good baseball player or something and you know i had to reframe my expectations as i grew up realizing like yeah it's not really going to work out so then i got in the pool and i was like a little better at swimming maybe able to get myself into college swimming but i was still not awesome at it, it wasn't like national level caliber at that sport then i find lifting and i'm like oh I'm like actually decent at this, right? Until nowadays when everybody else is getting so strong and I'm like, well, I'm not, not that good anymore, but I guess I'll keep training. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing though, but so if I would have asked you two, uh, three years ago, maybe even as recent as two years ago, hey, uh, do you think you're a better swimmer than a weightlifter? You'd be like, yeah. But now you'd be like, yeah. I think I'm a better lifter than a swimmer. Yeah. So really you should have just played, you know, like lacrosse, probably, <laughs> <laughs> something, okay. Uh, question number 10, can you speak on imposter syndrome as it relates to training other people and not feeling qualified enough? Sure. I mean, I don't know the clinical, you know, or like Wikipedia well, it's, it's level not like definition. A clinical thing. Yeah, imposter syndrome, just for people who are not familiar with it, refers to this feeling among individuals who are actually like rel reasonably well-trained in a per per particular area or like who are practicing in a particular setting, uh, having this feeling that they're inadequate not good enough, that they don't know enough yeah. um, awesome. relative, relative to their peers, even if they may actually possess all the requisite skill and training and characteristics and knowledge base and things yeah. like that. I'll accept that definition. This is in contrast to like expert beginner syndrome or, <laughs> the opposite or, or, or like Dunning, the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yeah. Uh, so sure, I think this is very common. Now I can only speak from my experience and then my experience training other coaches because that used, I used to have that job where I was actually educating other coaches. Uh, nobody feels ready to coach people based on having a certain certification or a certain, you know, uh, accreditation after their name or a certain, uh, you know, stamp of approval. I mean, when I was, when I first started training this 2007, you know, and I was like CSCS, ACSM, I got, uh, I ended up getting my USAW club coach. Like I was, I had all these letters, right? And I had also been strength training myself for a decent period of time. Like I was a fairly strong person. I was like, you know, I've got the credentials and I've got the experience from, at least on my own end, I should feel somewhat comfortable like teaching somebody else how to do this. But I was asking the most basic of questions like, well, how many sets really should they be doing? Or like, what exercises should they be doing? And, and that comes from just a lack of uh, like wanting some deterministic answer. Like, I want somebody to tell me this is the answer, you know, and have a firm thing. But what we know, know what I know now is that there is no firm answer. I'm, I'm more comfortable now with being with the uncertainty of it all. But in the beginning, I wanted a definitive answer. So I think imposter syndrome in this particular case, people want to feel like I have the answers, that they're very solid and they're all evidence-based uh, and that there's not a lot of squish there. But in the reality is you have to be very comfortable being uncertain with these things, but you just couch things appropriately. So to speak on imposter syndrome, I think most people experience it. I don't think it, you should let it dissuade you. And I think the biggest step that you can make towards getting rid of it or not ha uh, uh, not having it impair your workflow anymore is just 
is trying to get more comfortable being uncertain and not having the answer. The best things you can be able to say is, I don't know, I'll find out, or I'm not sure. So even now, if someone was like, what is the best rep range for you know, getting strong? Like, ooh. Doesn't exist. Well, I don't know, yeah. <laughs> I don't think that it exists based on present evidence. And they're like, that's not a very solid answer, Dr. Feigenbaum. And it's like, it's the best I can do right now, you know? But in 2007, I'd be like, well, let me think about it, you know? And then I'd try to come to some you know, long-winded answer and then I'd feel even worse at the end. I'd be like, I really don't know what I'm talking about. Why am I taking people's money? Really what you're, try, what you're do, trying to do, especially as a newer coach or trainee, is you're trying to get more people to be physically active. You're trying to get more people to change their nutrition. You're trying to spread knowledge in your community, right? And not hurt people along the way. It's gonna be really hard to hurt people unless you hold really strange opinions on exercise and nutrition, right? You're like, don't resistance train, for instance, or never eat carbohydrates. Like that's, again, having very strange opinions are the only way that you can really like mess people up, okay? Uh, but as far as like benefiting folks, you can do a lot without necessarily knowing the answers to all these questions. You just have to be okay saying, I don't know, I'm not sure, or I haven't learned that yet, you know, which is fine, which is fine. The main skills you need as a new coach are to be able to coach movement and program in a way that generally comports with what we know right now to be useful. And so everybody in here right now could program for a beginner, right? And has some sense of how to program for a more advanced lifter, Right, as far as knowing exactly what changes to make and this and the other, that's an experience thing. And even I don't have the answers there. I just have a general sense of things. So yeah, I think a lot of that sort of uh, feeling of imposter syndrome gets augmented if you are surrounded by other colleagues or professionals who appear to have everything perfectly down. They know everything about training. Right? Unfortunately, that is uh, not the case. And those people yeah, we are either assure you. <laughs> faking it, right? Or they are inappropriately confident, right? <laughs> and so recognizing that when somebody makes extremely, extremely confident claims about things, that it is probably not appropriate for them to be that confident. Um, and that there is much more uncertainty, as, as Jordan was saying, than is sometimes um, uh, sometimes conveyed when these people make their claims or give their advice, um, that might help with your feeling that. Because you might feel like, I'm the only person who doesn't know the answer to this, whereas this guy's saying, oh, no, you have to do it this way. This is the correct way to do things, and everything else is incorrect based on my expen extensive experience. Well, fortunately, you can go to the research evidence on most things and use that to you know, support your answer and support your knowledge base, which is the way we do things. Or at least generate a hypothesis where there's not direct data on something, yeah. I would say that probably about, I don't know, maybe monthly, maybe more frequent, give or take, Jordan or I will find our way down some new rabbit hole of research or knowledge or some new topic area. And we'll send like one, re re one review article on the topic to the other and we're like, well, shit, here we go. Yeah. There's this entire field that people have been researching for the past 30, 40, 50 years or something like that. We didn't even know this shit existed. And we're just like dipping our toe in right now, right? And this is with our knowledge base and you guys, you know, how 
we, we have developed a pretty solid handle, we think, on the material we presented to you this weekend. But this, again, involved like enormous, enormous amounts of reading and synthesizing this stuff and putting it together. And we're doing this entirely new areas that we know literally nothing about on a near weekly to monthly basis. So we could feel imposter syndrome about every new topic area we get into. It's completely normal, right? But we just say, rather than comparing ourselves to the way other people are behaving, because they can behave inappropriately, faking it or being uh, over, overly confident, we're just gonna go with what the research evidence says on this or go to the scientific literature on a matter and fill out our knowledge from there as much as we can. What was the last thing you changed your mind on? I'm not good at remembering these things. You know, what the last thing you changed your mind on? Mets, maybe? Um, I mean, that's one thing, sure. A thing? That's a thing we changed our mind on. Once that, once that other paper came out that I cited. Yeah, yeah. So previously we thought, I told you guys this during the, lecture, the programming lecture, where I was like, previously we thought eight Mets, like this cutoff, above that, you weren't going to get any additional, like, uh, disease, uh, burden of disease reduction or mortality improvement uh, with higher degrees of cardiorespiratory fitness. But new review came out suggesting that there is a continued improvement after this eight Mets of cardiorespiratory capacity. So, and the funny like, thing is, after, <laughs> after we talked about that, like, he looks at me and he's like, well, duh. Yeah. We were kind of stupid that we actually thought that, other, thought that other thing was the case, right? Why yeah. wouldn't being in better shape continue to get you more improvements? And we're like, well, yeah, I guess we're stupid. Well, our, that, but it's funny, it's funny is because our original bias would be like, the more fit that you are, the better you're going to do. But then you look at the data and you're like, well, I mean, I guess I got to temper that a little bit. <laughs> and then it comes back and we're like, yes, my original bias was correct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, th I think getting that idea across of being okay with uncertainty and recognizing that most people who are overly confident are probably either faking it or wrong uh, <laughs> will make you feel better about yourself. Yep. So. It's okay. We all, we all are, are anxious about our own <laughs> education levels at times. Uh, yeah, I mean... <laughs> Well, I'm just saying, it's like, you know, if you think you don't know enough, sure. you're like, oh, this bothers me. It's like, yeah. I mean, I've told Jordan, I've heard somebody say, I know everything there is to know about strength and conditioning as a direct quote. I'm like, nope. That seems unlikely. Yeah. Right? Citation If needed. I believed yeah. that, I would say, Sh how can I get that? Right? Turns out it's not possible. Yeah. Okay. What recommendations would you make for weight loss and nutrition for a patient several years post-op? Ruin why? That's a gastric bypass surgery. Yeah. Over time, how does your body adjust to those changes? Does it return to normal absorption? Asking for a friend. <laughs> Neato. Uh, so as far as what recommendations I would make for weight loss and nutrition for a patient several years post-op ruin why, I wouldn't. Outside of potentially supplementation with like vitamins, if, they, if there's evidence that this person has some decreased absorption. But usually those folks are on uh, vitamins for life. It's just part of their like, post-op care. Uh, I'm not aware of data suggesting that they stop at any particular interval of time. Uh, that being said, over time, does your body adjust to those changes? Those changes, I assume you mean, again, surgical, surgical right. Uh, not really, especially in a ruin Y situation, because there's not like an expandable, you know, or, or, or deflatable or any other device. It's just surgery. You had surgery. Uh, does it return to normal absorption? So it's not that your absorption was uh, necessarily, like, it, it was diminished because of the surgical procedure, and because it was changed, it's not going to, like, 
come back. You've taken areas of the intestine that are involved in absorption and you've removed them and they're not coming back. Uh, so in that case, the vitamin supplementation is usually needed indefinitely. Um, I, again, outside of that though, I wouldn't make any specific recommendations like, oh, you need more protein, you need more carbohydrates, you need more fat, you need more this or more that. Rather, you're managing based on results, like how's your weight changing, how's your waist circumference changing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and what are your risk factors and what do you need to do? But it wouldn't be, I wouldn't take into account the Ruin Y procedure outside of like making sure that you're doing your post-op care as needed. Yeah, I agree. I think they need to make sure that they're not getting deficient in anything, and then the rest is based on results, like you said. There actually may be some sort of adaptive changes. Oh, I'm sure there's remodeling. Yeah, yeah. Um, in my mind, it's perfectly I'm good, plausible that somebody might have some adaptive changes to their new anatomy. Um, however, I actually don't know what that is. So I guess imposter syndrome at work right yeah, here. It, right? Wouldn't, it wouldn't be surprising if there were adapt. It yeah. would be more surprising that there weren't any adaptive changes. Yeah, I would expect maybe some of the colonic mucosa or the, the small intestinal mucosa changes to Crips adapt are gonna to go something. Crazy. I don't know. It's, but I just don't know what I happens. Haven't, I haven't read that. That would be interesting to know. Last couple questions here. Sure. Given the current data and other observations, what is your stance on the validity and prevalence of non-celiac gluten intolerance? Uh, my stance on the validity of it, that people believing that they have a gluten intolerance is clearly real, like that happens, that's in re based in reality. As far as what to do about that, I don't know that just telling them like, hey, you don't really have celiac, I don't think that's the answer. And I, I don't know that, we should actively be managing this because they have a belief system that's already in place that's part of their identity and how they eat, which is a huge like sociocultural sort of uh, uh, input into their lifestyle. Um, I would want to change that. People who are celiac and, and people in general who don't eat gluten have higher risks of cardiovascular disease, period. And this is thought to be due to less, uh, less intake of whole grains. I know the paleo crowd's gonna roast me for this one. But even like the, the guy who brought most of the celiac research to the United States is like, you don't want this. You don't want to go gluten-free. This is a bad diet. You shouldn't do this. Not only is it more expensive, it's less nutritious. So people think they're doing this for their health. It's not healthy to avoid gluten in any event. I don't know that we can run like a PSA you know, sort of campaign where it's like, gluten is your friend. And it's like, you know, there's a mascot and he's like this prolamine protein that's like in a bread making things like chewy. <laughs> like, I don't think that's gonna work. But, but there, the data on it currently suggests that if people believe that they have this non-celiac gluten intolerance and they believe that they're getting gluten-free food, they do better, even if it has gluten in it, compared to yeah, I, think there, I think there's a few, I'm going to break this down a little further. I think there's a few different cohorts to consider here. So there's obviously the clear-cut celiac disease individuals, those who have proven, you know, disease based on biopsy or that's the gold standard for, for diagnosis of this. There is a cohort of people who believe they are sensitive to gluten, but in fact have no actual gastrointestinal uh, disorder whatsoever. 
that's the other end of the spectrum. By These biopsy. are the people who have been purely noceboed by the internet or by paleo podcasts and the like. People who, again, when I was talking about inflammatory diseases for sarcopenia or inflammation in the context of lipid disorder, I was talking about real inflammation versus not real inflammation. People who eat a piece of toast and they feel, claim that you know all their you know their whole body feels terrible, but when they get evaluated and biopsied and things like that, there's no evidence of any problems whatsoever. That there is a there is a no an established uh, nocebo type mechanism for so-called gluten intolerance in a certain subset of these individuals. I think there's likely to be, or there is a cohort in between um, where this non-celiac gluten sensitivity is not purely nocebo uh, mediated. However, what exactly they are sensitive to is unclear. There is some evidence suggesting that people in this in between where when you do the removal of those types of foods from the diet, they actually get better, even in a placebo-controlled fashion. They may be more sensitive to what the so-called FODMAPs in the diet. Fructo, the oligo. Fructans, oligo, and polysaccharides, I think. Does that cover out? They're just a bunch of carbohydrates. Yeah, a, a particular subset of types of carbohydrates in the diet that may, they may be more sensitive to rather than the gluten itself. just happens that some of those things coexist in a bunch of different foods. So. I think that there are basically two subsets of the non-celiac gluten sensitivity people, the people who are legitimately sensitive to certain elements in the diet that are probably not gluten, that are, that are probably other molecules in the food that they may actually legitimately benefit from moving, removing, as well as those who are not sensitive to anything biologically, but have been noceboed purely and they tend to, you know, maybe they become hypervigilant after they eat a piece of toast, how does my stomach feel? How does my stomach feel? How does my stomach feel? And as soon as there's like an abnormal gurgle, they're like, there it is, it's acting up on me again. Yeah, don't be hypervigilant. Right? Um, and so, yeah, I think. Can you think about our ancestors, like just looking, like if they came to the future and they're like, this guy, you know, has indoor, like running water, electricity, like what are these lights, you know, unlimited food supply. And can't eat toast. But bread is taking him out. <laughs> Super resilient, bro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the second part of this is, so think about it like this. You have a person who has for years felt like at certain different times of the year they've had an upset stomach, which is the normal human experience. <laughs> but uh, when asked, yeah, I think that I've had uh, an upset stomach uh, sometimes over the past few years. And my doctor doesn't understand me. They're always in and out, super fast, they don't care. And then I went and saw my naturopath or my chiropractor or my whatever. And they said, maybe you're sensitive to gluten. And they spent 90 minutes with me. And they listened to me and they understood all of my problems. And I'm not saying that this is bad, right? I'm not saying that you shouldn't spend as much time as you can with patients, but I, but I also understand why this becomes so seductive. And then they say, you know, I think you're gluten sensitive. Just stop eating gluten. Here's what has gluten in it. I'll see you in three days for your follow-up. Also, we're gonna run this proprietary blood test. Doesn't mean anything, but anyway, moving on. And then the person reports, yeah, I cut out gluten, I feel way, way better. See, it was the gluten. That's partly this nocebo mechanism and partly a fail, failure to sort of accurately diagnose potentially a sensitivity to FODMAPs. And it's partly a placebo mechanism 100%. based on expectations yes. and their trust in that person who Correct. told them to do that. Yes. 
it, multiple levels of psychiatric sorcery. Which, it, again, is not all bad. We could learn a lot from being able to spend more time with patients and accurately you know, hearing their concerns and communicating with them effectively. And I say that we, I mean the allopathic medical community, it's just we're under, placed under different time constraints, which is very, very difficult. And I empathize with our you know, provider friends. Um, that being said, like, that's one of the ways that this happens. It's, uh, it's tough to deal with. So anyway, going forward, if you feel like you're this person, you're like, I'm gluten intolerant, but I don't have celiac, I would challenge you, eat half a piece of bread. Just half a piece, see what happens. Don't pay attention, don't like focus on it, don't like put out your journal and your like recording. Time, zero, ingested, 120 grams of bread. Time, 0 0.01, drink of water. Like, you know, don't do that, just go on living your life. And if you notice something that, you know, brings this to the forefront, it declares itself, quote unquote, then, hey, follow up with, you know, your doctor, your real doctor, you know, the one who went to medical school, and uh, go from there. But other than that, I don't think that people should be actively be trying to go gluten-free. Okay, last question. This is my favorite question. Sure who would win in a fight, Dr. Feigenbaum or Dr. Baraki? And I would just like to say that there's a reason. <laughs> so here's the, here's the thing. Um, Dr. Baraki and I are both nonviolent individuals. Dr. Baraki is more of a nihilist than I am, though. Uh, he doesn't get sucked into as many internet arguments as I do. I'm more aggressive. So for that reason, I think Austin would win. Uh, I would get fatigued more quickly. He's got an endurance background. Also, his low bar back squat without knee wraps is stronger than mine, so he would probably just hip drive his way to success. Yes. yes I have, who's the smartest? So, all right, we have objective metrics on this, right? We have, we have objective metrics on this. So in medical school, Austin, you were, were you number one in your class? I don't know. I don't think that they did class rank. But yeah, it wasn't like, but you were in the top probably Three or yeah, so I know that I was in the top percentage okay. that I, we got the award, right? Percentage. Well, no. So, so, so you had you had your junior your junior uh, junior AOA. Yeah, sure. yeah. So I, you know I got that. But on our step one, which is like the the sort of stratification exam that you take to get into different residencies, Austin got a 265 and I got a 257. So again, I have to concede to Austin this now. My, in my defense, I did start a business during that. I set a top 20 all-time powerlifting total during that time as well. Uh, and in Austin's event, he got married, you know, and engaged in other like interpersonal relationships that seemed to be important to him. So I think... <laughs> seemed to be. Well, you know, nothing's real, so... Uh, <laughs> I think it's a draw, is what I'm getting at, even though objectively, I think you'd beat me in the fight. Do you think so? I mean, I don't fucking, I don't, Jews don't fight. Like, we're like, <laughs> we're nonviolent. Yeah. yeah, that's part of the problem, is that I don't think either of us have actually been in a fight. In oh, yeah, I got jumped once. Yeah, have I you remember, been in a fight? I vividly remember, I think it was like second or third grade. Wait, I was, what? I was like, I was like riding the, I was riding the school bus. Hold on. This is, this is. Is this yeah. real? Yeah, and, and some kid was getting on the bus and passing, and I don't know, I don't remember who it was or if we had a beef at that time. But he, did you pass a note to his girlfriend? He punched the, he punched me straight in the stomach as hard as he could. And that was it Knocked for the you. wind out of me for like, you know, for a long time. I was literally like in second grade at this time. I was like, 
severely jacked up by this. I did oh. nothing provocative to this guy. He just punched you. And then we both went on living our lives. I don't know who he is anymore or what happened. He probably doesn't squat 625, though. It's unlikely. You met him now. <laughs> <laughs> I can I can hip drive him out of the room. Yeah, sure. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I thought about having us arm wrestle, but I don't want to do that because I have a meet coming up and then like the wood thing. Yeah, and my elbows, you know. Yeah. It's just, it's just so weird, right? <laughs> so yeah. we'll talk our way out of that yeah, one. Yeah. <laughs> All right, very cool. All right, so hey, thank you guys so much for coming out. Really enjoyed having you. Thanks for watching on YouTube. You guys are great. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks. With the whey protein, people kept asking us, which protein should I take? What do you recommend? And when we looked into it, we didn't really feel comfortable recommending any protein. So we just made our own. It's only got four ingredients. The essential amino acid and BCA contents are very high. This is exactly what you want out of a whey protein.